Hello, readers. Eddie Dominguez is a former member of the Boston PD and FBI Task Force who joined Major League Baseball's newly formed Department of Investigations in 2008, where he worked for six years. And he has documented those six years in the excellent new book, Baseball Cop, The Dark Side of America's Pastime. Eddie, thank you for the time today. How you doing? I'm doing well, Trey. Thank you for having me. Eddie, uh, before we get into the meat of what you wrote about with the Department of Investigations, because there are some fascinating revelations in this, I wanted to get your background out there to people to uh, give them a better idea of where it is that you're coming from. Uh, You were actually born in Cuba. When you were a toddler, uh, Fidel Castro actually toppled the government and overtook the country. Your family escaped several years later. Uh, what was that like for you? Do you have any memories from that time of your life? And uh, if so, uh, how did that impact your upbringing and how you are as an adult? Yeah, I, did. I definitely have memory of it. Um, most of it not good, but I do have memories of it. And it impacted my life greatly, um, not only... Uh, what I went through, but the people that I was surrounded by in Cuba, my grandfather, who I speak about, who's uh, my hero, my idol, um, who died in Cuba after I uh, came to the United States. Uh, My mother, uh, who raised myself and my brother uh, to become the men that we are today. Um, And, you know, the the things that we went through in Cuba is, is like you said, is a child uh, going through all this chaos um, and having to denounce the government uh, to be able to leave. Uh, back then, uh, in 1966, we came, but we actually denounced the government in 63, um, a couple of three years after Fidel had taken over. And what ensued, uh, what happened as a result of us denouncing the government and put us, putting ourselves on a lottery, a list to get out of Cuba, was, you know, a lot of um, negative um, feelings towards us. Uh, we were, the people that declared themselves uh, anti-Castro were called gusanos, which means worms. Uh, and not only were we called worms, but they would paint worms on the doors of uh, our front door. And um, I was kept out of school at the time. Uh, as soon as we applied to leave for a year, uh, the government uh, used to do that uh, because they thought that you'd be leaving right away, and it was sort of a way to punish you. Uh, The same as my dad, uh, who prior to uh, Fidel taking over, worked for General Electric in Cuba. Um, And then the government took it over, and he kept the job, but he lost it as soon as uh, we denounced the government. So it was hard. It was hard to to survive. Uh, And somehow, through it all, my mother, who's always been the backbone of our family, um, made it through, and we finally uh, left Cuba under uh, Linda Baines Johnson was the president then, and he had uh, he had this plan uh, for Cuban refugees to leave a certain amount per year. Uh, the only way you could come, though, is if somebody claimed you in this country because they became responsible for you once you got here. Uh, and the person that claimed us was my godmother uh, and my mother's best friend down in Miami. And so your family moved to Miami, where you say in the book you had nothing, and eventually uh, y'all made your way up to Boston. Was there a point when that move finally made sense from a quality of life standpoint? Yeah, I think so. Um, when when we got to Miami, you know, um, we were a burden on my godmother, and my mother's a very proud person, and 
we had um, aunts and uncles on my dad's side up in Boston. So she decided, uh, you know, to stop being a burden. We came up and uh, we, you know, we lived in some dire places at first, but sure, sure enough, she found jobs and, and we picked ourselves up and, and, you know, we, I think that the, the way we were brought up and the fact that we were brought up in Boston uh, with the school system and the hospitals that we have here. And um, we, we became to, you know, very, very much uh, Bostonians. Um, we, we love it here. I mean, I, I can't tell you we love the cold weather, but <laughs> we, we became acclimated to, to the area and it's just a beautiful city. Now, Boston also has a reputation of being a racially divisive place at times. Did you experience any of that in your upbringing in Beantown? I know that that is, uh, that's running around the whole country, that uh, we are an exception to, to the rest of the world and the rest of the country. I don't believe we are. Uh, I believe uh, there are people with uh, racist thoughts everywhere, uh, and they do exist here, but I don't think... Uh, to any more extent than they do anywhere else in this country or in the world. Um, yeah, you run into those those people once in a while. Um, but, you know, we were brought up um, to just work hard and put our head down. And, you know, I'm not going to tell you I didn't run into some of those incidents at time, but it was just people that were ignorant and, uh, you know, and just didn't know how to deal with, with somebody that wasn't exactly like them. Uh, I think it, it has changed a lot over the years for the better. Uh, but I, I have to say overall myself, I was treated pretty fairly. Um, and again, it was just a matter of that's where we were raised. We really didn't try to pay attention to those things. We just put our head down and kept on working. What led you into a, a life of law enforcement? Um, my, even though my grandfather was in law enforcement, he, he was a, a type of law enforcement figure um, back in, in Cuba. Um, he, you know, was a Bautista uh, follower, and he ended up going to jail because of it. But he believed in, you know, in the, doing the right thing. And I think that played a large role in, into me becoming uh, a member of law enforcement. My brother became an attorney, uh, and we both dealt with uh, the criminal element. Um, and it, at first, I, I got into that, but then it, it became like a love, and I really did. I enjoyed every day that I went into work uh, for the Boston Police Department. They treated me very well, and I hope that I, in return I treated them well. I surely tried. And what were the sort of crimes that you were defending against? Well, for the most part, I was 20, almost 30 years, 29 years, and for 23 out of the 29, I was uh, involved in uh, pursuing narcotic traffickers. Uh, I did a lot of undercover work. I did a lot of wiretaps. I did a lot of search warrants, and um, I put a lot of people in jail over those 29 years. Um, it, there were some hairy situations, and baseball cop uh, depicts some of those um, where uh, an undercover um, is always not no different than, than a police officer, especially in today's day and age, in uniform. But you, you always run, you know, the chance that you're going to get hurt. And that was uh, pretty much an everyday thing uh, in our line of work. 
And Eddie, you actually mentioned briefly undercover training when you're talking about uh, not just your own law enforcement background, but also the lack of training that some individuals had when they were trying to essentially go undercover for Major League Baseball. I'm curious to know what undercover training is like. What does that consist of? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. It's probably the proudest thing in my years in law enforcement is that I helped put together a local FBI slash local police department class for, for undercovers. Back when, when I started, I'm bilingual, and I remember vividly being 23, 24 years old and uh, being asked by a supervisor to go into the projects and purchase some heroin. I was never involved in narcotics, didn't, you know, I, I never smoked a cigarette, never mind uh, anything else. And I obviously, trying to impress, I said, yeah, no problem. And I went in the project, and I remember thinking, what it is, what is it that I'm looking for? I, I have no idea how much it costs. I don't know what it looks like. And it was a very, very stressful experience. From there, I, you know, basically taught myself uh, how to survive. As a result of joining the FBI task force my last 10 years in the department, uh, I came to know this uh, gentleman, Mike McGowan, who had done, we just recently retired, but at the time had done over 20 years of undercover work and was involved in the FBI undercover school. And uh, we got together and we worked together and we ended up liking each other a lot, respecting each other. And he agreed to form the first FBI slash local law enforcement undercover class in the country. And him and I took part in that. And it's something that thinking back of what I experienced doing the things that I did without having any knowledge of what I was doing, it just brings a joy to me to be able to teach young kids how to deal with situations. And what it entails is we do a lot of role playing. There's classes in the daytime where we teach them what it is that they should do and not do. And then we spend the rest of the night, you know, we start at eight in the morning and sometimes end at two or three o'clock in the morning, trying to get them tired. So they react under those types of situations where you feel tired and, you know, and sometimes you react differently. But it's, uh, it's something that I'm very proud of. It's something that actually my son, who just recently became a police officer, took part in last year. And I just, you know, I can't even tell you how much help that class, even though it was later in my career, helped me in staying alive under circumstances that otherwise I wouldn't know how to react. Wow, that's uh, fantastic. Congratulations on your son making it through the class as well. Eddie, I wanted to make sure to get your background out there to people to authenticate what we're about to get into in the world of Major League Baseball. Now, I've mentioned it a couple times that this book mostly deals with your time with the Department of Investigations from 2008 to 2014, but your time working in and around baseball started before 2008. What was your initial taste working with MLB? Yeah, Trey, back in um, 1999, I had just arrived at the FBI task force. I was just starting to work, and I remember the special agent in charge approaching me and telling me that there was this program. It's called the Resident Security Agent Program for Major League Baseball. And what it is, and it still exists, is unlike the other major sports, the security people working out of the commissioner's office 
at the ballparks, active law enforcement officials that work in the area that covers the stadiums. In, in my line of work, I covered the whole city of Boston, working in a task force and the drug unit. So I was asked by the SAC, the special agent in charge, to put my name in. And we went through a process where about 40 of us interviewed, and I was lucky enough to be chosen. And that started my dealings with Major League Baseball. What I found right away is that the way that they dealt with information that I would supply them uh, was, to me, not the way that a organization that was really looking into the safety of its players and other issues that called into question the integrity of the game. How were they dealing with that information? They were basically booming it out of the rug almost in every single instance that something was reported. They would just look the other way and, you know, act in ways that I thought that an organization like this would not. Wow. Now, your baseball duties pretty early on actually took you back to Cuba for the first time in some 30 years for an exhibition game between the Orioles and the Cuban national team. I believe that was in 1999. What sort of emotions did that trip stir, and were you ever near Fidel Castro? Yeah, and, uh, baseball cop details that first year, which to me was the best year that I spent out of my 15 years associated with baseball. That was the year where there was the All-Star game at Fenway Park, where Ted Williams was present, and it was the year that I went back to Cuba. It was 33 years after I had left, and it was a very emotional trip for me. My mother had seen me just before. She happened to be visiting my godmother in Miami, just by coincidence. And when I told her that I was taking this trip, it came about really quick. She visited me at the hotel, and she asked me, to do one thing is not to shake hands with Fidel. (laughs) And as it turned out, we spent eight days there. At the end of the trip, we were asked right after the Orioles game to have an audience with the president, with Fidel Castro at his palace. And the book details how I was able to find a way not to shake hands with him, and obviously made my mother very proud. (laughs) I bet. And uh, you talked a little bit about your job as the resident security agent for the Red Sox, which started in, I think you were technically hired in 98, but the job really began in 1999. You were actually a part of some pretty significant things in Boston Red Sox history. Let's start with uh, your involvement in the Red Sox-Yankees scrap between Pedro Martinez and Don Zimmer. How were you involved with that one, or I guess the after effects of that one? Yeah, I was actually, there's a photo that came out in the Boston Globe, and I'm at, you could see me walking in the background when uh, just after Pedro had thrown Zim down to the ground. <laughs> that resulted in Pedro getting a lot of death threats. And I had dealt with Pedro before this on numerous occasions. Pedro's probably one of the the, the toughest, not, a, not big in stature, but... Very, very tough man, and uh, probably one of the toughest that I've met in baseball. He had a way about him, and he feared almost nothing. And I had asked him on prior occasions not to go to places where he wanted to go in New York, places that I knew were not places he should be, and he ignored me. On this particular trip, though, he was visibly scared, which was the first time I, I ever, and the last time, that I ever saw Pedro physically scared. And this time he listened to me. And on the day of the game, 
which wasn't something that I was supposed to do. But just as he's ready to go out and take his bullpen, I'm in the dugout, and, you know, I was with him all day, make sure nothing happened to him. And he asked me to walk him out to the bullpen, to take his bullpen session. And I remember thinking, like, I'm not sure that, you know, my bosses would want me to do this. And he looked at me and he goes, please. And I said, okay, Pedro. So I walked hmm. him out to the bullpen. Like I said, one of the one of the toughest guys I've ever met. And for him to be that scared, obviously he never shared completely what these phone calls and and letters were, but I know that they were bad enough to, to scare him to, you know, that much. You were also on the field when the Red Sox broke the curse in St. Louis in 2004. As somebody who grew up a huge Red Sox fan like you did in Boston, what was that experience like? Yeah, it was like an out-of-body experience. And obviously, you know, you try to stay as professional as you can. I tried never to show, even though, as you say, I was a Red Sox fan, but I tried never to show that because I was there uh, for the safety not only of the Red Sox players, but the fans and every other player and umpires and everything else. So for me to show that, you know, I was rooting for the Red Sox, I just didn't think it was the right thing to do. But I can tell you on that particular day, it was a very hard thing not to do. The head of security for the Red Sox had to go back to Boston because there was an incident that occurred prior to us clinching the World Series where a young lady um, lost her life because they were rioting in the streets around Fenway. So he was asked to go back and take care of issues that might arise as a result of you know possibly winning, uh, sweeping the Cardinals. And I stayed as the head of security for, for the Red Sox. And just to be standing there in the middle of the field after they won and being the person that they looked upon, that the Cardinals security looked upon to allow people like, you know, the ownership and the general manager to be on the field because I was the one who could identify them was just so real. It really was. Now, you write at length in this book about a shady associate of David Ortiz's. His name was Monger, nickname was Monger, rather, and you actually suspected him of using PEDs and also betting on baseball, including Red Sox games. Was this sort of person common in MLB clubhouses? Because this guy was around, this guy Monger was around David Ortiz quite frequently uh, before and after Red Sox games. Yeah, unfortunately, that was very common, and all the investigations that were done prior to me joining and subsequent to me joining show that it's usually a hanger on, usually an associate, a slash a relative that leads these ball players or that gets these ball players either PEDs or involved in gambling or anything else. And that was the case with Monga. The first time I saw him, you know, having been at the time 26, 27 years on the job and having investigated and arrested many individuals. The hair in the back of my neck just stood up, and I knew that there was something wasn't right. Monga is a Dominican fellow, and many of my sources, my informants, were Dominican and Colombian and Cuban and Mexican, because that's who I dealt with in, in the narcotics world. And I asked a couple of them to keep an eye on him and get back to me, whatever it is that they could find out. One of my sources found out that Monga and David were going to a barber shop on Blue Hill Avenue, which is a few miles away from Fenway Park, and that the barber shop doubled as a gambling parlor. One particular time, Monga was observed by my source bidding $1,000 action reverse on the Chicago White Sox to beat the Red Sox and to go over 
the amount of runs, which I believe was eight runs on that given day. And Monga ended up hitting both ends of the bat. I gave this information as a resident security agent as far as Monga making the bets and being you know, closely affiliated to David to the resident uh, security agent boss, the security boss, Kevin Hallinan. And then I ran with the other part of the investigation as far as bookmaking goes on my end, on the law enforcement end. We ended up at the end of a pretty lengthy investigation taking down about 20 different gambling parlors all over Massachusetts. Similar to this one, some of them were barbershops and some of them were bodegas where they were taking action on sporting events. Unfortunately, the way that they handled the the part that the security side took, it wouldn't have been the way that I would have handled it. In the book, I detail how I received a call uh, one day from Kevin Allen and to pick him up at Logan Airport And unbeknownst to me, we were going to tell David about what we knew. Uh, We ended up at Tito Francona's office, the manager's office, with David, Tito, myself, and Kevin. And Kevin proceeded to tell him exactly the story that I just told you. Uh, And David denied any involvement by Monga or himself as far as the gambling goes. And I just couldn't believe that this was the way it was (laughs) being handled. And I recall that we spent a couple of innings at Fenway, and then we were leaving Fenway, and I get a call from my source. And the source said that he had just received a call from the barber telling him that they were no longer taking bets at the parlor. And shortly thereafter, he sold the business. So it just caught me by complete surprise, and I just couldn't believe that that had happened the way it had. Well, I'd be curious to know how David Ortiz performed against the White Sox that day. Eddie, eventually you were approached about joining uh, something called the Department of Investigations. How was that job? How was that department described to you? And did you consider yourself to be a good fit for the position? Yeah, Trey. I had been asked, like I said, from 1999 to 2008, I was a resident security agent. And on two different occasions, I was asked by Kevin Allen and to leave the Boston Police Department and to join his security department in New York. Having seen how it worked and what they did, I respectfully declined. Then the 2005 congressional hearings occurred into the use of PEDs and the fact that it was widely thought that baseball, the commissioner's office, the Players Association were turning a blind eye on the use of PEDs which I agreed with. And as a result of that, Bud Selig summons the friend of his, former Senator George Mitchell, to conduct an investigation. That investigation led to a report that came out late in 2007. And in that report, Senator Mitchell details uh, how on numerous occasions, baseball had been warned about the use of PEDs by their athletes and they had turned a blind eye. And he also, uh, Senator Mitchell, also made recommendations. One of the recommendations was to form the Department of Investigations. It was to be headed by uh, well-known and respected law enforcement officials, which they did. Uh, They hired Dan Mullen, a former chief in the NYPD, a lawyer, well-respected, with a great heroic career. He took part in 9-11. There are photos of him in the middle of 9-11. And George Hanna. George Hanna was an FBI agent, 
head of the organized crime unit in New York who took out many of the uh, well-known mafia families in the New York area. They were friends of mine. I had known them for quite some time, not only through baseball, but through law enforcement. And they asked me to join this Department of Investigation, which was supposedly going to be an autonomous investigative unit working hand-in-hand with law enforcement and not to have anything to do with the Labor Department, who Mitchell in his investigation found that they were just not the right body in MLB to be investigating players who belonged to the Players Association and whom they would have to negotiate for the collective bargaining agreement. So I was approached by Dan and George, and they sold it to me as... Uh, just the complete opposite of the security department was that we would not be sweeping things under the rug. We would be finding out anything that called into question the integrity of the game. And we would cooperate with law enforcement to bring anybody with, you know, criminal charges to face the law. And at first that's how it was, but we soon find out that, you know, we were bringing bad press to major league baseball and it slowly but surely started to, shift back to the way the security handled things. And I'm sorry if I'm backtracking a little bit, but I was under the impression reading the book that your dealings with international players and human trafficking of pro prospects, specifically out of Cuba, but also other places as well, was one of the initial parts of your DOI roles. Was this when you were still with the RSA, or was the DOI part of you dealing with international players? I dealt with Cuban ballplayers as an RSA because after the 1999 trip to Cuba, uh, um, of all people, which my mother's not happy about, mm-hmm. but of all people, Fidel's son, Tony Castro, is their doctor, the doctor of all the national teams. And he used to travel with the team. We became friends. And so I dealt with the Cuban team. But as far as the human trafficking aspect, I mean, I I knew it existed being Cuban. I know that these players can only get out of Cuba one or two ways, defect, which is almost impossible because they're watched 24-7, or be brought out of Cuban by, you know, human traffickers, mafia members. But I first ran, you know, firsthand into this when I joined the Department of Investigations. My gathering from reading about the human trafficking side of this story that you tell is that MLB teams actually conspire with human traffickers to bring specific players out of Cuba. Is that true? Well, Trey, I wish I could could tell you that I know for a fact. The information that I had leads me to believe that does occur. And there was one specific incident that would have led us to finding out if that indeed occurred. We had heard, I had heard, plenty of rumors that this is the type of thing that happened. And there was one specific incident that's detailed in the book where there's a young man by the name of Diane DiCiero, who I had met as a 16-year-old playing in an international tournament against uh, the United States 18 and under USA baseball team in Mexico. And this young man was being held in Mexico by the traffickers. And it came to my attention that he was going to sign with the Chicago White Sox for an amount of money less than what other teams were offering him. And the reason why I was told that this was occurring 
is that it appeared that the White Sox had made a deal with the traffickers prior to the bidding for the players had occurred. I was very excited about getting this news. I spoke to Diane Viciero uh, by phone and his father, who were in Mexico, and I called Dan Mullen, my supervisor, and told him that, you know, for the first time doing an investigation in Major League Baseball, I got a rush. I mean, usually in law enforcement, when I used to do the undercover work, you know, the bigger the target, the more the rush you would get. And I felt that kind of rush because I, I thought that, you know, this would be an international incident and that we would be able to hopefully take down some of these human traffickers who were also organized crime members who partook in dealing drugs and kidnappings and everything else. So I got this call on a Friday. I was alerted to it on a Friday, and I had already made calls to DEA and FBI agents who worked in Mexico, and we were ready to take action. The next day, uh, on a Saturday morning, I received a call from Dan Mullen from his phone, and I answered the phone, and it's Dan Mullen. Hi, Eddie. And then soon thereafter, I hear the voice of Rod Manfred yelling and screaming at me, what the F do you think you're doing? I'm telling you right now, stop this. And, you know, it went on for a little bit, and then he hung up the phone. Dan called me back shortly thereafter because he knew how I felt. The wind was taken out of my sails. I felt like I can't believe this just happened. At that point, I reached back out to the Boston Police Department and was in the process of going back when I approached Dan and George and told them what I wanted to do. And they convinced me that this was just a one-time occurrence, that it wouldn't happen again, and that don't worry about it, put it behind you. My gut told me to leave, but I didn't. Uh, I usually do what my gut tells me. I didn't this time. And you also detail some of the different kidnappings that you dealt with. Also, you were in a number of foreign countries to really help uh, line up the information being provided to you by uh, some of the individual players who were trying to make it to America to play professional baseball. And there were some pretty egregious things happening within the MLB office in the Dominican Republic that you uncovered as well. What were some examples of that? Yeah, for years, once we got there, we found out from former ball players, current ball players, agents, that a lot of these players' bonus money was being stolen by not only the international scouts, but by American scouts. We also found out that players were lying about their identity. In outside of the United States, once you become 16 years of age, you become a free agent. And usually, if you're not signed at 16, the signing bonuses drop, incredibly so. So a lot of these players, if not signed at 16, would assume somebody else's identity. And I talk in Baseball Cop about what extremes the agents and the players used to go through to acquire somebody else's even identity, even in some cases, moving into somebody's homes that had a child that was younger than the player and assuming their identity to the point where they lived with the family and acclimated themselves to the neighborhood. So when you would do the investigations, it would be very hard to determine who the player really was. But obviously, if they had been scouted for years when they were originally going to be 16, all these scouts knew who the player was. 
and they would just turn a blind eye because in the end they would take a piece of the signing bonus. The Major League Baseball Office of the Dominican Republic was running investigations as far as the identity, not at all as far as the scouts stealing the money. But what we found is a lot of the people they had hired to conduct the investigations were themselves involved in the cover-up. So you had people working for Major League Baseball, doing investigations, actually taking money to make sure that nobody found out that the player was indeed not who he meant to be, not who he really was. You mentioned that the Department of Investigation's job was described as you as something that was truly independent versus uh, what your experience was with the RSA, where you would bring information to authority figures in baseball, and a lot of that info, unfortunately, was just swept under the rug. And in some instances, like what you described with Rob Manfred, you're cursed out uh, for bringing something that is not only a criminal issue, but also a threat to an individual's life, and uh, was we're just essentially told to uh, shut up and forget about it. At what point after you had taken that DOI position did you realize that you were kind of sold a bill of goods in terms of uh, just how independent the DOI was from MLB? Well, Trey, that, that incident actually happened right, right away. It happened in, uh, I believe, 2009. And then it was a slow process by which they, they meaning uh, Rob Manfred, Bud Selig, and the Labor Department, took the legs from underneath us. And it culminated in the biogenesis investigation. And the book details the investigation, which at times was very funny, that the characters that we dealt with that were involved with Anthony Bosch, the head of the uh, biogenesis lab, were just, you know, movie characters. I mean, something that you don't run into, or you don't think you would run into in real life, but they were quite a crew. Um, (laughs) We took the investigation to the DEA, we supplied them with sources. We supplied them with experts in uh, dealing with PEDs. And they tell you in the book, a lot of the agents that we work with, exactly what we supplied them with and how much they appreciated our work with them. What they soon found out is that Major League Baseball and the Labor Department, after an article came out in the Miami New Times, concerning stolen documents from Anthony Bosch by one of his workers whose name was Porter Fisher. The article came out and it depicted the names of players that were involved with Anthony Bosch. And That's the Miami New Times article? Correct. The Miami New Times came out in April of 2013. We had begun the investigation in 2012 with the knowledge of Bud Selig and Rob Manfred, and they were all for it. What happened is when the article came out, they decided that they wanted to expedite the investigation and threatened us that if we didn't get the DEA to do it quicker, that they would fire us. And then when they saw that we were not going to derail the federal investigation, they took it upon themselves without us knowing to hire other investigators in Florida to run their own investigation. An investigation that started out with us trying to take down Anthony Bosch, a drug dealer, not just a PED dealer, in the Miami area, who we showed through our sources to the DEA that he was distributing PEDs not only to athletes, major league athletes, but high school and college kids. And that's the real reason they took the case on. 
And soon enough, they had gotten one of the main targets, they meaning the Labor Department, to cooperate with them while the DEA was investigating this individual that was cooperating with them. So needless to say, it was a very awkward situation that we found ourselves in, in that the DEA had a hard time explaining or coming to grips with what was going on. Now, throughout your biogenesis investigation, you were given a very blunt directive again and again from them MLB Commission Bud Selig and Executive VP Rob Manfred involving one of the game's biggest stars. What was that directive? The directive goes back to the beginning when I joined the Department of Investigations. It seems like from you know 2008, early on, until he was finally suspended, A-Rod was always the main target. He was the star that you were shooting for, and he, anything and everything was put to the side if any news about A-Rod came about. And I believe that the thought was that, you know, you take off the head of the snake, the rest of the body would fall with it. And they, I believe, I mean, that's something you would have to ask them, but I believe that by taking A-Rod out, who they saw as the uh, poster child for PEDs, you would convince people that the PED era was over. And they were very happy at the end of the arbitration hearing that, you know, that he was given a year suspension. Do you think they really thought that that era was over, or they just thought that the public perception would be that baseball was all of a sudden a clean sport again? I think they thought that the public perception would be and that the media wouldn't haunt them the way they had for years about turning a blind eye to performance-enhancing substances. The book details what Anthony Bosch, who we ended up interviewing years after he came out of jail, what he has to say about PEDs in baseball. And he believes, as do I, that a person such as Anthony Bosch and Anthony Galea, an individual uh, who's a doctor in Canada who was also investigated for distributing PEDs, they are so far ahead of this testing process that, as Anthony Bosch says, if you follow my protocol, you would never test positive. And the truth is that out of the 14 people, players that were suspended, only one, Ryan Braun, had tested positive. And they were suspended on Anthony Bosch's say-so. So he, Anthony Bosch, estimates that 70% of ballplayers, when he was distributing performance-enhancing substances, were using performance-enhancing substances. I estimated between 20 and 25%. And the book quotes other people that were involved in the distribution of PEDs at different percentages. But if you just look at, at biogenesis and the fact that you have 14 players suspended, only one tested positive, I think those figures are even higher than Anthony Bosch's 70%. I found that interesting, Eddie, and I also found it interesting that you talked to a PED dealer who told you that a Hall of Famer had approached him who was at the back end of his career, but a surefire future Hall of Famer, asking him to come up with a program for him. So the first thing that these guys always have to do is test blood to see what's going to work best for them. And this dealer 
saw through this guy's blood that he had taken so many PEDs over his baseball career that there really wasn't a PED program that would work to extend his career or make him any better at the sport. I was actually a little bit surprised to learn that. Is that something that you knew, that if a guy used too much in the way of PEDs that eventually they wouldn't even be effective anymore? It's something that I that I learned from speaking to these you know PED distributors. They say that, especially this specifically, this gentleman said that you know once uh, your body gets accustomed, it's like the way they explained it to me. It's like uh, like a heroin user. A heroin user would start with a little bit, and you know, and then a week after he needs more because the body gets used to it. The same applies to PEDs, and mm. it comes to a point where there just isn't enough. And, you know, the body is so used to reacting to the drugs that you put in them that, you know, it it just can't react anymore. And the part that I was surprised is that, you know, this individual is willing to pay this PED dealer, you know, X amount of money. And I was surprised that he turned it down, knowing the kind of individual he was. Did working in baseball and seeing the manipulative operations behind the scenes affect your love for the game? No, it did not affect my love for the game. You know, baseball is thought of as America's pastime. It's also Cuba's pastime. So it's in my blood. I love sports. I love all sports. I love what sports brings. I love the fact that, you know, you raise kids as I did playing sports. And I love the pureness of it. I love the competition, the respect you gain for the people that you compete against, the hard work you know, learning how to win, but more importantly, learning how to lose and fair play. What I found through working in baseball is that I grew to dislike the business of baseball and the fact that the fair play really doesn't exist because of the business of baseball. And no, did I lose the left of the game? I did not. I have two sons, my oldest sons, played uh, baseball at a pretty high level. One of them played minor league baseball. I have sons that play hockey. And I have a grandson just born a couple of months ago. And I would never have them not play sports. I think sports is is a beautiful way to, to bring a child up. But the business of sports, specifically major league baseball, turned me away from that side of it. Yes, absolutely. Have you heard from anyone in baseball about this book, and has that response been generally more positive or negative? Yeah, Trey, it's funny because a lot of people that I thought it would have a negative effect on, it's just the opposite. Without going into names or team affiliations, I received uh, calls, text messages from a lot of people, some people I even mentioned in, in the book, that applauded the fact that I took a stance and that I'm letting the rest of the world know what goes on behind the scenes at 245 Park Avenue, the commissioner's office in New York. And they have expressed that not only are they happy that these stories came out, but they wish that other people would come out with other stories that exist and that I'm not aware of. I have gotten, you know, some bad feedback from people that you would expect that would get bad feedback from. But in general, I was very surprised because, you know, I'm I'm attacking the national pastime. Mm -hmm. But as I explained a minute ago, I'm not attacking the game because I'm not. I love the game. I love the intricacies of the game. It's not that. It's the fair, even playing field. It's the 
being able to stand tall and say, you know, we took out this part that was involved in, in our national pastime that shouldn't exist. Those are the things that, you know, that I was trying to get across and trying to get across in this book. One of your first years working with baseball, an international scouting director for a team told you MLB is like the mafia. That comparison surprised you at the time, but considering all the work that you've done over the years in law enforcement with organized crime, do you agree with that assessment now? I tell you, Trey, when when I was first said to me, I laughed and I detailed in the book because I did undercover work with with the real mafia or the mafia that we know. But I have to say, he was the first one to say it. I can tell you he hasn't been the last one to say it. Wow. So I think that that tells you how I feel about it. Finally, Eddie, this feels like the baseball version of the football expose brain game, a book that was then turned into a movie starring Will Smith called Concussion. Are there any plans to make a movie out of this excellent book? We'll see. You know, there's some talk about it. We'll see what will happen. I think first, before that happens... We have to gain a national acknowledgement at this point for reasons that I could guess at. We've yet to reach that. And I thank you so much for having me on with you because hopefully little by little we can spread the word and it'll catch on nationally. We're experiencing a lot of trouble at that end, trying to have it catch on nationally. But yeah, there has been talk about a movie. All right. Well, uh, my fingers are crossed from that one. I think it'll make a great movie and uh, not as good as the book, though. That's my prediction right now if the movie ever does come out. The movie's never better than the book, and I can guarantee you that will be the case. With Baseball Cop, the dark side of America's pastime, so many incredible details in this book. It's not all dark. There are plenty of dark moments. There are also some lighthearted stories as well involving uh, major leaguers, uh, not only players, but also executives as well. And Eddie Dominguez, he's not only a former member of the Boston PD and FBI task force, Uh, and also a part of that MLB Department of Investigations for six seasons. He's also the author of Baseball Cop. You've been nice enough to join me for an hour today. Eddie, thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate it, sir. It was an honor. Thank you, Trey. Thank you so much.